Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know. The podcast. You're making... I'm giggling like a schoolgirl. <laughs> You're making a, a. Oh, I think I just topped you, schoolgirl one. Echoey, reverby uh, sound. So this could only be about one thing: nitrous oxide. That's right. N2O. That's right. Hippie crack. The bitter mistress. Uh, whippets. Jazz juice. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I mean, those are the the street names. It's that, that has medical applications. Well, some of those are made up. Yeah, we're yeah. we're going to cover the whole gamut here. Yeah. Medical use and recreational use dangers. Yeah. We're going to do an episode on nitrous oxide. That's right. Um, so Chuck, mm-hmm. we should probably start not at the beginning, but not at the end, somewhere in the middle, because yeah. the history of nitrous oxide is extraordinarily interesting. Just the history. Yeah. We're going to tell it out of order, like pulp fiction. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> See if you can recognize characters from other movies, like Vincent Vega's brother. Yeah, Michael Madsen was Vincent Vega's brother. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh, you knew that? I did. Well, well. <laughs> I don't think that's not the most heavily guarded secret. <laughs> did you notice that red apple cigarettes make an appearance in more than just Pulp Fiction? Yeah. All right, I'm done. Did you notice that Quentin Tarantino likes to write 275-page scripts? Yeah, but that's <laughs> nothing compared to the 580-page tome that Humphrey Davy wrote on nitrous oxide. Very nice. Little segue. All right. So we're not even talking about Humphrey Davy yet. He's at the beginning. He's not even at the beginning, but he's toward the beginning. We're going to talk instead about the sad saga of one Dr. Horace Wells. Boy. DDS. Very sad. Yeah. So Dr. Horace Wells was a dentist in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, I believe, in the 1840s. What is DDS? Is that dentist? Dentist. See? <laughs> is that what that means? That's what I've always assumed it was. <laughs> And at this point, everyone knows we just make most of the stuff we say up. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so you're right, sir. He was a dentist in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, it was Hartford. I said New Haven. Uh, well, what's the difference? <laughs> as long as it's in Connecticut. <laughs> uh, and this was in the 1830s. And uh, Oh, really? I said 1840s. He, oh, man, really? Yeah. Maybe we should start over. Wow, wow, wow. All right. Uh, he was a dentist in the 1830s, and he recognized something that all dentists of the day recognize, which is everyone hates your guts because you are causing excruciating amounts of pain yeah. on a daily basis to your patients. Yeah. It's it's like, here's some whiskey, maybe. Yeah. Bite on this broomstick. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you can't do that because you're doing dentistry. So you can't even do that. Yeah. You ever heard the term? It's like pulling teeth. That's yeah. where it comes from. Right. And and so uh, Horace Wells, DDS, dentist, dentist C, <laughs> uh, he felt pretty bad about this, enough so that... um. He went to a traveling exhibition once that came through town, and yeah. this was in the 1840s, and it was staged by a man named uh, Col- uh, Gardner Colton. That's a great name, Gardner Quincy Colton. Yeah, he sounds like a like a rich well, kid from Texas, or yeah, or like a sideshow showman, which is what he was. Right, and he actually was in uh, medical school for a little while, and while he was in med school, he was introduced to the wonders of huffing nitrous oxide. Yes, and he said. Uh, I'm not going to do medical school anymore. I'm just going to drop out and hit the road with a tank, the old hippie crack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And show people what's what. And so at one of these demonstrations in Hartford, in sometime in the 1840s, um, he saw Colton give this demo and, and I guess right afterwards saw a man run into the stage or fell off the stage and hurt his leg. Yeah. And Wells went over and was like, are you okay? And the guy's like, what are you talking about? And he said, the bone is sticking out of your leg, sir. And he's like, <laughs> what's a bone? No, it wasn't that bad, but he did say, interesting. Yeah. Um, here's what I'll do. I'll get Colton uh, to come into my office tomorrow and my buddy, uh, colleague John Riggs, I'll get Colton to administer the gas and yeah. I'll get Riggs to pull one of my teeth. And uh, he did so. And he said, I did not feel so much as the prick of a pin. Yeah. And he said, I think we're on to something here, something called pain-free dentistry, a.k.a. please stop hating me. Right. And so Wells followed in this really great tradition that 
really stopped in, I guess, probably about the 20th century, mid to late 20th century, of where if you're a scientist, you were your own first human test subject. I bet people still do that. Yeah. Apparently in... um In Marvel Comics, they do. One of the greatest articles I've ever read in any magazine, anywhere, in all time, throughout the universe, in perpetuity, yeah. is called Blood Spore. And it was about the murder of a mycologist, a, a scientist who studies mushrooms. Wow. And... um it's really, really interesting. There's all sorts of weird, like, cold case stuff to it. But there's also, like, an under underlying thread where if you're a mycologist and you discover a mushroom, yeah. you try it out on yourself. Right. Like, that's just what they do still today. I think that you try it on yourself after you fed it to your children <laughs> just to see what happens. Maybe your dog first, <laughs> and then you try it on you. Man, I'll bet those those mycologist dogs wear bandanas you think? and are super laid back, you know? <laughs> Uh, what's the name of the article? I want to check that out. Blood spore. It's Blood in spore. Harper's, which means it's behind a paywall, but. Gotcha. It's, it's almost worth a, a year subscription just for that one. Wow. And Harper's archives are definitely full of good articles. Agreed. So, uh, Wells was pretty happy because he knew he was onto something there. And he said he, he, uh, performed, um, just dental procedures for the next, uh, few weeks and months on dozens of patients and they were all like, this is great. Works great. Didn't feel a thing, Doc. And he said, I think I'm ready. I want to present this to some Harvard medical students in the establishment. And he got on stage and uh, he went to uh, pull a tooth and the guy started screaming. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, after all of these tests, Ugh. successful tests, when he finally gets up the gumption to, to give a, a successful demonstration, it goes as bad as it could. And it's actually called the humbug affair. Because the medical student shouted humbug and, uh, what was the other Swindler. one? Swindler. Swindler at him. Yeah. And uh, he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I swear. This is for <laughs> real. I really care about my patients. And the room started spinning and he fell over. And when he came to, he was on skid row, hooked on chloroform and nitrous oxide. Yeah. He later went on to say that, um, although wait, let me, let me clarify. Uh, you technically can't get hooked on nitrous oxide, but he was huffing a lot of nitrous oxide. Right. Uh, well, although Davey, well, we'll get to that. That'll okay. be a spoiler. Uh, he went on to say that he thought that he had probably withdrawn too much too soon from the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as we'll go on to talk about here in a little bit, um, when you stop breathing in nitrous, you go back to normal pretty quickly. Very quickly. So he kind of just aired, I don't know, I would have gone a little bit overboard for the demo. Sure. Just to be on the safe side. I would have been like 99, pal. But, um, yeah, he, he, uh, Became, uh, well, like you said, not hooked, but a heavy user of ether and chloroform. Oh, yes, ether. Um, in the, uh, on his 33rd birthday, he was, I think, awaiting arrival of his, he ended up living alone, moved and was waiting on his, like, wife and, uh, kid to come to London. But by this time, he'd sunk into, like, a terrible depression. Oh, yeah. Right? And, uh, he was alone because his family wasn't able to join him yet, and he, Flipped out on his 33rd birthday, went out on the street and threw acid on these two women. Flipped out after going on like a chloroform bender. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, went to prison. And in prison, he sort of reached, he kept doing chloroform and ether in prison, because <laughs> I guess you could get it, and um, hit rock bottom and under an ether binge, uh, slashed his femoral artery and his thigh died. Well, yeah, he talked to the guard into escorting him home to get his shaving kit. And at home... It's like, I need a big razor. I think at home, or maybe back if he's getting chloroform in prison, it could have been there. He huffed a dose of chloroform to anesthetize himself, and then he cut his femoral artery. So to the end, he was a believer in anesthesia. I guess so. However, um, years later, in 1864, he he was recognized by the ADA, the American Dental Association, uh, as a pioneer of using, uh, not uh, ether, but uh, what are we talking about? NO2. N2O. In dentistry. N2O. Yeah. And do you know who got him to that point? Well, yeah. Gardner Colton. That's right. He set up practice as a dentist after all, and it was his successful demonstrations that got the ADA on board. So now we need to go back in time. Yeah, even further back. That's sort of the middle. So we're in the Wayback Machine. I guess we didn't point out we were in there already. I think everyone just assumed. Uh, and we go back 70 years previous to Horace Wells to uh, a guy named Jason Priestley. 
<laughs> yep. Dylan. Sorry. No, Brandon. Joseph Priestley. Oh, that guy. Jason Priestley's dad. Yeah, or great, 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 great grandfather. I don't think there was any relation, actually. You don't know. You're right. Uh, Joseph Priestley, he was, uh, an Englishman and he began- Just like Jason Priestley. That's right. And he was a big, uh, <laughs> he was a, a, an enlightened thinker and he yeah. was a contemporary of Ben Franklin and he was a smart guy on a lot of different subjects. He was a polyglot. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Cool guy. And- No, uh, I'm sorry. He was a polymath. A polymath? A polyglot is somebody who speaks a bunch of different languages. Polymath is somebody who's in a bunch of different fields. He may well be both. Yeah, probably. You never know. He was an enlightenment guy for sure. Uh, and in the 1770s, he was studying a love. I think we should go back to using only old terminology. <laughs> right. Because what they called uh, gases back then was the study of the airs. Yeah. Which is great. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Gases. That and- means to shoot a duck. And he actually lived next to a, a brewery, so he had a lot of access to CO2 and very smartly created a, a device called the pneumatic trough to isolate gases, collect and isolate these gases, and he was good at it. So, well, a guy named Stephen Hales actually created the first pneumatic trough, which is actually a pretty simple invention. It's neat, though. Yeah. So, like, you have a, a tube. Let's say you have a fire and you want to collect carbon monoxide from it. Yeah. You basically have a tube that collects it, the smoke that's coming off of it, and it the tube goes into a vat of water and up into a um like a, a glass bell jar that's upside down. It's inverted so that there's a bong. There's air at the top. <laughs> I think the principle's similar. Yeah. And the, so the the smoke goes into the water and then goes up and is filtered through the water and what the gas you have on the other end is whatever you're looking for. Yeah. It's, or it's a bunch of different gases that you can study in pure form. Simplistically beautiful. It is. So um, Priestley had his own that he made, the pneumatic trough. And this guy actually isolated eight different gases or airs for the first time. Yeah. Which apparently is a record still. Yeah. I don't know what the record is. Like most gases discovered in a single lifetime. Oh, okay. I guess. All right. That's good. It is. I don't know that there's any more gases to discover. I wonder. And who studies that kind of thing? What do you call somebody who studies gases? An aerologist. An aerosist. Well, if you do that, write into us because I want to know all about that. And if there's, if you guys think there's any gases left to be discovered here on Earth. Agreed. All right. Let's take a break before we talk about Humphrey Davy. Okay. Because he's, this is where the story gets really good. That was quite a break. Yeah. I can't believe you broke that lamp. I was upset. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Humphrey Davy. Uh-huh. Uh, he worked at a place called the Pneumatic Institute, and they used uh, gases as for therapy, curative therapies. Yeah. And he uh, got into using them on himself, which, like you said, was sort of the thing to do at the time. You experiment on yourself. Right. Plus, as the, the author of this Rolling Stone article from 1975 that I read pointed out, yeah, he was also like 20 at the time. So it totally makes crazy? sense that he would like huff a bunch of nitrous oxide. Right. And then and call it science. Right. But he, I mean, it really was science. So this guy apparently had tried it a few times before, but then his big experiment, his first huge experiment was on Boxing Day of 1799, right? Which is December 26th. It's very important that you remember December 26, 1799. Why is it important? Well, it was Boxing Day, but it was also literally Box Day because Humphrey David got into a box <laughs> and had some guy pump in, was it like 20 quarts? Yeah, he, he stepped into a sealed box and he requested uh, a physician, like a real doctor, sure, to release 20 quarts because otherwise it'd just be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. He uh, released 20 quarts of nitrous oxide every five minutes as long as I'm conscious. That Not must bad. have been the safe word is I'm passed out. And he went for an hour and 15 minutes like that in this box. Not bad. And then he stepped out and apparently grabbed some oil skins or also called gas bags. Yeah. And um, huffed another 20 quarts right afterward. Yeah. 
And they were like, how are you still standing? Yeah. And he goes, I'm not, I'm flying. He basically did. He had uh, a great disposition to laugh, which eventually is where laughing gas would come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about uh, shining packets of light and energy. He talked about objects dazzling in their intensity and sounds amplified into a cacophony that echoed through infinite space. And losing all connection to external things. It's pretty cool. So we, there's this really great article on the Public Domain Review, and it's called, Oh, Excellent Gas Bag. Is yeah. it gas bag or airbag? Airbag. Airbag, I'm sorry. Yeah. Which is a quote from a poet that was friends with Humphrey Davy, who became the poet laureate of uh, Great Britain later on. Um, and the, the, um, the author really does a good job of describing what nitrous oxide does to you almost suspiciously. Good. So um, they say that uh, the first signature was its curiously benign sweet taste, followed by a gentle pressure in the head as he continued to inhale. Within 30 seconds, the sensation of soft probing pressure had extended to his chest and the tips of his fingers and toes. This was accompanied by a vibrant burst of pleasure and a gradual change in the world around him. Objects became brighter and clearer, and the space in the cramped box seemed to expand and take on unfamiliar dimensions. Now, under the influence of the largest dose of nitrous oxide anyone had ever taken, these effects were intensified to levels he could not have imagined. Should I keep going? Sure. Do you want to, do you want to take over? No, go ahead. I think it's better when we break it well, up. Well, I'm going to read the Southie part, so. Okay. Ahead. His hearing became fantastically acute, allowing him to distinguish every sound in the room and seemingly from far beyond. A vast, distant hum, wah, 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 perhaps the vibration of the universe itself. In his field of vision, the objects around him were teasing themselves apart into shining packets of light and energy. He was rising effortlessly in a new world whose existence he had never suspected. Somehow the whole experience was irresistibly funny. So Robert Southey, his buddy, mm-hmm. you mentioned the future poet laureate. Right. He brought him in afterward. He was like, I, I got to get some more people in on this. Fantastic. Right. I got to share this. Yeah. That's what you do. So he brought in uh, Southey, uh, got him high, and he wrote his brother, Tom, a letter <laughs> that said, oh, Tom, exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Such a gas as Davy discovered, the gaseous oxid. Oh, Tom, again, exclamation point. I have had some. It made me laugh and tingle in every toe and fingertip. Davy has actually invented a new pleasure for which language has no name. Oh, Tom, I am going for more this evening. It makes one strong and so happy, so gloriously happy. Oh, excellent airbag! Exclamation point. Pretty great stuff. No wonder he was the poet laureate. So in uh, summer of 1799, after they closed the shop down, the pneumatic institution during the day, he would invite surgeons and playwrights and poets and chemists and anyone who was interested who we could get the word to to come in there and huff nitrous um i was about to say under the guise of experimentation but it really was because he would he learned that he was really finding that there were it was a language experiment because no one could accurately describe what they were feeling with english words right exactly they um he he found that very strange and and significant that People would just come out and were, just couldn't put it into into words, their experience. Sure. It was, I mean, it was a brand new sensation. There was um, one guy, James Thompson, said, we must either invent new terms to express these new and peculiar sensations or attach new ideas to old ones before we can communicate intelligently, uh, or I'm sorry, intelligibly right. with each other on the operation of this extraordinary gas. I think um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the great poet, um, put it best. He put it really succinctly. He basically said that it was like coming in from the snow into a warm room. Yeah. So what happened was he did these experiments with these people. They eventually got kind of tired of it. Mm -hmm. He experimented on himself, like not even in the room. He just would fill up a big balloon. Right. Or not a balloon, but a a silk bag. Right. And just walk around England huffing. Right. And he found himself getting psychologically hooked, at least. Yeah. Because he said uh, he confessed that the desire to breathe the gas is awakened in me by the sight of a person breathing. So he would just see someone walking and breathing and think, oh, man, I, I wish I had some gas. That's why they call it hippie crack. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So everyone else fell away. He was uh, only experimenting with himself for a little while. Then he brings in Coleridge, and they really buddied up. Mm-hmm. And um, he, I think they were just kind of saw eye to eye on the gas. Right. 
Like, neither one of them wanted to cease using it. And so, again, though, you have to point out all this time while he's under the, he's just huffing nitrous basically constantly, Humphrey Davy is still remaining a man of science, right? Sure. So remember, December 26, 1799 uh, was the day that the Boxing Day experiment took place, right? By Easter, just a few months later, he'd written a 580-page scientific treatise on nitrous oxide and its effects on humans and animals. Should I read the title? Yeah. Uh, Researches, chemical and philosophical, chiefly concerning nitrous oxide or, oh man, what is that word? Deflogisticated nitrous air (laughs) and its respiration. Nice. Was the name of it. Yes. So in that book, he he mentions something um kind of i guess offhandedly he says that as nitrous oxide appears capable of destroying physical pain it may probably be used with advantage during surgical operations in which no great effusion of blood takes place yeah so not like open heart surgery but maybe if you're going to set someone's broken arm right so he says this but it's another 40 years before uh, Horace Wells starts trying to use nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. Up to that point, it's basically just a high society drug yeah. that people have like nitrous parties with. Yep. That was the the fate of nitrous oxide from 1800 to about the 1840s. And then uh, Horace Wells picks it up and it becomes brought into the medical field. Yeah, they finally start using it for its intended, uh, well, what would end up being its intended purpose uh, that's still used today. Right. And uh, in fact... Nitrous oxide is the number one inhaled anesthetic in uh, the medical profession. Ask for it by name. And here's the deal, though. When you get it in the at the dentist, they can actually vary it, but it never goes more than a 70-30 mix. I saw that, too. This article says it's always a 50-50 mix. Oh, that's not right. So it's, it's um, no it more than up. 70% nitrous. Yeah, which is very much key, as you'll learn, because one of the big dangers uh, of doing it recreationally is not mixing it with oxygen. Right. If you mix it with oxygen, like, you're fine. You're totally fine. Right. Um, so it's kind of nuts, Chuck, that with nitrous oxide, we spent at least 150 years, and still today we're not a million percent sure, but at least 150 years using it medically without understanding how it worked. Yeah, it's like you said, though, it's still a little dicey. It is a little bit dicey. They, no, it m- makes you feel good. Right? It does the trick. And it kicks in your, your dopamine and all the pleasure receptors. So it's, it's classified as three things. It's an analgesic, which means that it kills pain. It's a, it's an anesthetic, but it's actually not a true anesthetic. And, uh, it's an anxiolytic, which means it, it diminishes anxiety. And so I found this 2006 paper, um, and it basically says, here's what we think is going on. All right. Hit me. So with an anxiolytic, um, it triggers the same um, response in the brain as a benzodiazepine. Yeah. Which is like Valium or Xanax or something like that. Yeah. So it actually does cut down on anxiety, which is why they, a dentist will use it for like little kids or patients who are like nervous about going to the dentist. Right. Get a little gas. Probably not a 70-30 concentration. Yeah, probably. Just a little bit, and it'll cut down on your anxiety, and you're you're totally fine, Doc. Go ahead and do whatever you like. Yeah. Um, As far as an analgesic is concerned, it actually does have a tremendous amount of um, an ability to cut down on pain. And it does so by activating your opioids. Those are released. Yeah. Opioids are produced in the brain, and your opioid receptors Uh are activated as well. And then it also goes to your spinal column and messes with its ability to um, to process pain there too. And they say that something like a uh, just a thirty percent concentration of nitrous oxide is equal to about ten to fifteen milligrams of morphine. Yeah, and that's if it's fifty fifty or below with oxygen, it's uh, on the analgesic side. Right. I think up to the seventy percent is when it is known as an anesthetic. Right, and it, so it's not technically an anesthetic in that if you if you huff that until you lost consciousness, yeah. you're probably in big trouble. Yeah, true. You don't want to use nitrous oxide for that, and anesthetists know that kind of thing. But it's used usually as an aid to a general anesthetic, right? Right. And it does have anesthetic properties, but it's a dissociative anesthetic, kind of like ketamine, 
which means that it goes after your NMDA receptors, which have to do with uh, memory formation and they uh, control um, like neural firing, right? Yeah. And it it has a dissociative effect, which is why when you're on nitrous, you feel like you have left your body. You've gone back yeah. in time. You died and are being reborn. Yeah. And one of the um, we'll talk a little bit more about childbirth later, but um, one of the quotes I saw from a childbirth nurse, um, they said they the mothers who use it during childbirth are um, that sometimes they can still feel pain. They just don't care about it. Right. Which would be the disassociative quality. Exactly. But I don't get, cause you said it was, uh. An analgesic? Yeah. I mean. Well, I guess maybe childbirth is so painful. It sure. Can't knock it out completely. And also, I mean, like with anesthetics of any kind, um, or even analgesics, any, any person's gonna have different reactions, varying reactions to different drugs, you know? Sure. Um, so that's, that's kind of the current state of understanding with, um, the, what, nitrous does to the brain, right? Right. You can also find nitrous elsewhere outside of medical settings too, right? Yeah, you can find it in a can of Ready Whip or uh, yeah. if you, um, a lot of chefs will have their own um, nitrous canister to put whatever they want in it right? Uh, to be used as a propellant. So uh, it works really well with fatty liquids and heavy creams and things. So what happens is uh, the gas is in there compressed into a liquid and mixed with the cream. Because it's, it's fat soluble. Yeah. So it mixes so it's really well. Highly pressurized. Right. But as soon as you open that thing up, it turns back into a gas and expands it like four times. Right. So that's why the whipped cream will come shooting out. What's neat is you could buy Ready Whip 20 years hence after it sat in a garage yeah. in Tampa, Florida, say, somewhere hot and muggy. Sure. And you shake it up and pour it out and that whipped cream will be totally fresh, not yeah. the least bit rancid. That's because nitrous oxide totally displaces air and oxygen, so no bacteria can can form inside a can of Ready Whip or any other yeah. instant whipped cream. Well, and that displacement of oxygen is also why you can die if you, let's say, put a bag over your head to intensify your high if right. you're using it recreationally. Well, we'll talk more about that later, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, before we break, though, let's mention cars because anyone who has ever seen Fasts and Furiouses. Or is a Sammy Hagar solo fan? I can't drive 55? That's right. Does he talk about nitrous? No, but it's just assumed that there's <laughs> nitrous involved. Well, you've heard, you may have heard or seen on TV or movies about, uh, using nitrous in your car. Like mm. you have that little tank or you may see one of those, uh, cheesy cars in a parking lot. With the, with the little tank in there. Yeah. And basically what it does is cars run, burn hotter, engines burn hotter and go faster with more oxygen. And if you crank in that, uh, nitrous oxide, uh, it's just basically going to ramp up the oxygen levels going into the engine. Right. And with more oxygen, more gas gets burned, right? More faster. gas gets burned, more horsepower is produced because the gases expand and pump those pistons even harder. Then you're too fast and too furious. Yeah. For the roads. Maybe even doing a little Tokyo drifting. <laughs> Have you seen those? Any of them? No, but I believe, I believe they're the most lucrative movie franchise in the history of, like, all movies. Well, because they made seven of them. Yeah, but like the first one made a billion dollars worldwide no, are, in its first week. Or they the are last super popular. one, the last one made like a billion dollars. Yeah, it's I, crazy I how popular I saw, they are. I think I saw the first one. I, yeah, I've never seen any of them. But that's about. It's just not my bag. I'm, no, uh, I don't. If you like that kind of thing, that's yeah. great. I'm, I'm glad not, you have that. I'm not, I've never been a car guy. Yeah. You know, like, I like my cars, but I've never been like, oh man, look at that sports car. Sure. I sure would like to drive fast in that. Yeah. Well, remember <laughs> when we hosted or, um, judged that Red Bull thing? Oh yeah. I was talking to, uh, young jock and I was talking to him and he started talking about cars and I'm like, wow, we don't have anything in common, do we? Yeah. Josh and I judged a soapbox derby contest sponsored by Red Bull and young jock, a local Atlanta rapper. Who was, was super cool. He's a very nice guy. But he was a car dude and I'm not a car dude. I know. You're yeah. not a car dude either. Like, huh? Well, I got my pickup truck. Yeah. I'm like, look at those, uh, <laughs> tires. Pretty neat. They really make contact with the asphalt, don't they? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a break and go learn more about cars, and uh, we'll come back and talk about some of the recreational use and dangers. But we're done talking about cars, right? Yes.
And by the way, if you want to know about cars, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, and you love us and you're not getting your fix from cars from us, go listen to Car Stuff. It, you don't, you're definitely not getting your fix about cars from us. I no. can tell you that. You can get it from Car Stuff. Ben and Scott have it locked down over there. Yeah. I bet you they've covered nitrous. I'm sure. In the automobile. They've covered everything. All right, so uh, recreational use. Um, it has its medical purposes and its food and auto purposes, but uh, nitrous is very famous for uh, becoming um, a big, a big, uh, especially at concerts. That's why they call it hippie crack. In the in the 70s, you started mm-hmm. being able to buy this stuff, like a big balloon full of it, at like a concert festival, or let's be honest, at a Grateful Dead show. <laughs> right. They're also, I'll post that Rolling Stone um, article on the podcast page for this. Really interesting. It is. But it's also a, a an what is that? Oh, it's called secondhand embarrassment. Like um, what people get from watching the Jeb Bush campaign. Secondhand embarrassment. Or, well, yes. Well, you've oh, never like heard of it, you, for somebody. For somebody. Oh, yes, okay. exactly. Um the the uh the you definitely get that from reading this because the the writers very earnestly super 70s oh really yeah like one of the person the people who is interviewed as a as an expert a source is the guy from high times only in the mid 70s did yeah. you get away with calling up the high times guy and just using him like a regular source. It, you'll see what I'm saying. Like, it sounds normal. Yeah. You read the article and you'll be like, yeah, this is super 70s. <laughs> well, in the 70s is when it started becoming a big uh, concert going activity. Oh, wait, I know what I was going to say. College dorm rooms. In this Rolling Stone article, they were saying, like, uh, if you go to, like, a lot of it was set at Ber- in Berkeley, California. Uh-huh. And there were, like, places all over, not just at concerts. Sure. Um, it was everywhere. Oh yeah, in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of people were like, "Acid's cool, but this stuff, like, you can just stop, and five minutes later, you're back on your feet." Yeah. So it was like a big deal to them. Well, which is one reason they call it hippie crack, because right? Because the the high is short lived, uh, and you want to do another one. Sure. Uh, and go listen to our crack episode. Should we talk about why the high is short lived? Uh, well, let me finish my thought. Sorry. <laughs> so, um. Earlier in the 19th and 20th century, though, like you said, when it was um, sort of the backroom parlor game of the high society, yeah. it made its way into Hollywood. And uh, back in like the days of making high times and movies like, or uh, not high times, the uh, what, what was the one? Uh, Casablanca. <laughs> no, the famous pot movie. I'm totally blanking out. Oh, um, on the pot movie. Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness. Uh, there were movies about huffing. There was Charlie Chaplin was in one in 1914, mm-hmm. uh, where he played a dentist, uh, a, well, someone posing as a dentist who would huff gas. Have, have you ever seen that Chaplin, um, thing where he does coke in jail and ends up like no. pulling the bars apart? <laughs> it's pretty hilarious, actually. Uh, and there were several, uh, movies early on called Laughing Gas, not just one. Right. And they weren't sequels. They were just multiple movies called Laughing Gas. Yeah, I'm sure you could get a decent amount of people into a theater to watch people doing laughing gas. Sure. And then they thought, man, I could go for some laughing gas myself. <laughs> All right. So what were you going to say about, uh, Oh, why the high lasts so, yeah. such a short period of time. So it's constant while you're huffing it, right? That's right. Because you're huffing nitrogen gas or nitri- nitrogen oxide gas. right? Yeah. And it's displacing oxygen. I'm sorry. Nitrous oxide gas. And it is displacing oxygen. But as long as you're, Huffing in a safe supply of oxygen as well, your brain's continuing to function. Yeah. But your opioid receptors are also going crazy and your dissociative NDMA receptors are going crazy too. And so you're high, but you're staying alive because you're taking in enough oxygen, right? Yeah. The thing is, your body doesn't metabolize almost any of that nitrous oxide. Something like 0.004% of nitrous oxide is metabolized. For the most part, you huff it in, it's dissipated through your lungs into your bloodstream, yeah. and then brought back out, and you exhale it. Yeah. So it, it resembles almost exactly its same form that it went in when it comes out, which means that there's no hangover, and it's expelled from your body through breathing, just right. normal breathing, after you take the nitrous away, which yeah. is why so many people were like, you can have crazy visions on this. This is what the hippies were saying. Sure. You can have crazy visions on this, and it takes you to other universes, and then five minutes later, you're fine? Sign me up. Right. Let's call the high times guy and see what he thinks about <laughs> it. Let's get a quote from him. 
Uh, I did find a study though, and um, I think it was last year, uh, published in Clinical Neurophysiology, that they uh, hooked people up to an EEG and mm-hmm. had them huff nitrous. Did they really? Uh, yeah, and uh, the guy there said nitrous oxide has control over the brain in ways no other drug does. And what they found was um, it altered, uh, it basically created slow delta waves for up to three minutes across the front of the brain every oh. 10 seconds. <laughs> I wonder if that's what makes the wah, wah, wah sound. Well, it's it basically what they found is it lasted for three minutes after you think you're okay. Oh, yeah? So it's still uh, still doing damage. Uh, even though you think you feel fine for for three minutes, which completely surprised them. Oh yeah, I could see that. Especially, I mean, if the effects wear off, you would think. Yeah. You would, you you would physiologically be back to normal too. Exactly. That is surprising. Yeah. I, I found another study um, from uh, I'm not sure when, but sometime in the last few years, where they studied the effects of it on rats and found that um, short term. Low concentration exposure and low concentration meaning like 50 years, like what they use medically. Yeah. Um, would like the effects of it on the brain, neural cells is reversible. Yeah. But it is very true. And this is why everybody hears about nitrous oxide is that when you huff, you, it, it kills brain cells. That's absolutely true. Yeah. It, cre- it creates apoptosis, which is pre-programmed cellular death. In your neurons, yeah. it causes your brain cells to die because of a lack of oxygen. Nitrogen or nitrous oxide displaces oxygen and your brain needs oxygen. And when your brain cells don't get oxygen, they die and your brain undergoes hypoxia, right? Yeah. Not good for you. No. Plus the fact that, um, it goes after NDMA, uh, uh, receptors. Yeah. Which are responsible for the myelin, which is the sheath that coats your, uh, your nerves, right? Yeah. Um, that can lead to uh, brain damage that lasts too. The thing is, and this is a rat study, it seems like it's prolonged exposure or exposure of super high concentrations that, that create irreversible damage. Yeah, they've done a lot more studying about it in uh, the UK than here because up until this year it was legal. Oh, they outlawed it? Yeah. Well, uh, so I guess a, the results of the study weren't promising. Uh, well, I mean, this is only, what is it now, mid-February? Yeah. It was only like two weeks ago that like literally came on the books. Oh, really? As officially law. Huh. Uh, and there were big demonstrations in, in England, like, uh, like massive, uh, huffing parties on the lawn of, uh, like the, I don't know where they decide these things. Is it parliament? P- Buckingham Palace. Sure. <laughs> Say Buckingham Palace. Uh, because they're like, this is, you know, what are we going to do at Glastonbury Festival every year now? Sure. Uh, and they, um. Nice buzz marketing, by the way. What, the Glastonbury Festival? Yeah. Well, we're not going to that. I <laughs> know. I was saying nice. Oh, okay. Um, well, they do it a lot there. That's why sure. the, the festival people said it's like a big uh, litter uh, offender. Because I could totally see that. Canisters and balloons are just everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, birds pick up the balloons and. They bad, try to fly off of the canisters, but tear happen. their legs <laughs> off because they're not strong enough to lift them. So, uh, worldwide, it was uh, in 2014, it was the 14th most used drug in the world. And. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Fourteenth, huh? Would you think it'd be higher or lower? I didn't even think about it. Yeah. I think it's just that stat just totally caught me by surprise. Fourteenth, uh, and the Independent said that um, the UK's largest drug and alcohol charity, uh, Alistair Bohm, uh, they said, you know what? We can't credibly deny that compared to other drugs, it's relatively low risk. Uh, the risk from taking it from balloons are quite low. Uh, and to back up what you said, he said where there have been stories about deaths, they tend to be from people who are using canisters. Uh, in masks, uh, and yeah. that's when you get into danger. Like that's stupid. Let me get out this old World War II gas mask, right? Or let me put a bag over my head, or let yeah. me get in a car, right? Uh, and then you're not getting that mix of oxygen, and then you die. First of all, kids, if you are putting a plastic bag over your head for any reason, don't do it. You're a dummy. Yeah, that's a dumb thing to do. Well, yeah, you're you're. You're reaching. You're going down the wrong path in life. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. <laughs> Because I don't want some kid to be like, I am a dummy, and that's why I do these things. You know, that's self-defeating. Come on, <laughs> come on, son. But there have been plenty of uh, plenty of uh, incidences of death. Um, Joseph Bennett, a 17-year-old from North London, died in 2012 after falling into a coma, and mm. then just this year, a 21-year-old student was found dead um, in his room with 200 spent cartridges. 
Oh, well, so that, just chasing that high is right. the problem. Yes. I mean, you shouldn't try it at all. Right. But you're, you're gonna die when you, uh, have those high, high, high concentrations. Yeah. That's the, I mean, that's the, the problem with nitrous. I mean, like if you're being administered nitrous, even in a medical setting, you can have a bad reaction to it and it turns out you're allergic to nitrous and you're dead. Yeah. But or you have you're the in a oxygen coma. at least. If you are in, right. But if you, even if you're in a medical setting, you're, you're you're flirting with death. You're right there on on the edge of death. And if you're doing it outside of a medical setting, your likelihood of dying or or suffering some sort of horrible adverse reaction to it is even more through the roof, right? Yeah. Especially if you're taking hits straight out of a tank and you're not taking breaths of clean air in between. Yeah. You, yes, you you very likely could die. And it's not just um hypoxia that that gets you or asphyxiation. You can also die from passing out. And hitting your head. Yeah, or I saw this one uh, sad case. I think it was in the United States. This uh, lady's son, uh, like, you know, wandered out into traffic and got hit by a car. From nitrous? Yeah, because he did nitrous and was just, like, so spaced out, he just kind of walked out into traffic. Oh, wow. Um, because you're not, you know, you're not aware of what's going on at the time. And chasing that high, like I was talking about, uh, it would feel so good. You're like, but it's so fast. Like, well, how can I prolong that experience? I'll just stop breathing regular air in between. What a waste. Yeah. It's just, it's not smart. No, it isn't. No. Um, I think we got that across, didn't we? I think so. You know who doesn't do nitrous? No how, no way. Who? Scientologists. Uh, why? L. Ron Hubbard hated nitrous oxide. Really? So much so that he stopped going to the dentist. He had famously terrible, um, teeth. He did have bad teeth. And he, he didn't go to the dentist. And he, in 1938, he did go to the dentist to have some work done. And they put him under with some nitrous. And he had a near-death experience and came back. And he wrote a manuscript called Excalibur. And it's unpublished. <laughs> and in Excalibur, L. Ron Hubbard claimed that anyone who read it either went insane or oh, committed yeah. suicide. I remember reading about that. And, and all of this clear. knowledge was given to him from his nitrous oxide experience. So he determined that nitrous oxide is very bad. It's a hypnotic. It makes you too suggestible. And um, you, you should avoid it at all costs. Interesting. Yeah, See, he the, writes about it in Dianetics saying it's it's bad jam. He's the only person to ever do it and not say this is great. <laughs> <laughs> he had a bad time on it. Well, let's talk about childbirth, uh, unless you have anything else. No. So... In Canada, in Finland, uh, Australia, and the United Kingdom, uh, traditionally women have used this and still do today during mm-hmm. childbirth. Sure. Up to 60% in the UK and about 50% in those other countries. Uh, but it's not in the US in 2011, less than 1% of hospitals even offered it. I, I've is, never heard of that in the US here. Well, that's all changing now. Um, Basically, the medical establishment is basically saying uh, there's really no good reason not to. Yeah. It's just sort of stubbornness in our history and being fixed in our ways um, of offering the epidural and, and other kinds of drugs during right. childbirth. Yeah. So it's there's been a big push lately to have it as an option, at least, for women. Um, labor machines are only 50-50. You can't even alter the setting to go any higher than that. Mm. Uh, and it's self-administered. Like, the woman has the mask. And she breathes it when she feels like she needs it. And at any point, she can be like, nope, uh, I want the epidural. Um, the thing is, though, epidurals can be really expensive. Um, nitrous is super cheap. It is super cheap. And again, it's as effective as 10 to 15 milligrams of morphine yeah. to, for taking care of pain. So they're basically saying women should have the option, at least. Right. If they want to try it out, uh, it's a lot cheaper than an epidural uh safer and they haven't um epidural I mean they're narcotics and epidurals they you know there are a lot of side effects and they really haven't found any side effects with that 50-50 mix under like a controlled supervised setting well the big fear though is that aside the, from like dizziness the kid is going to absorb some of this and there's going to be neural cell death in the baby as it's delivered is that has that been proven wrong they don't think there is any danger to the kid so huh. far because they said it's filtered through the lungs and uh not like the narcotics that are filtered through the liver right um so they said so far they haven't found where it, it hurts the baby in any way plus it lets you remember being born <laughs> i just think the self-administration part is pretty interesting yeah it you know it makes it lets the woman feel more in control supposedly of their own 
uh, comfort. Right. So I'm all for it. I, why not? Well, yeah. I mean, if it doesn't have any adverse effects, why not is a pretty good question. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. That's nitrous oxide. N2O. Humphrey Davy. The gas. <laughs> uh, if you want to know more about nitrous oxide, type those words in the search bar at howstuffworks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for a listener mail. No, Chuck. No, no. What is it time for? It's time for administrative details. So, Chuck, first and foremost, I really want to thank uh, John Morgan over at Queen Charlotte's Pimento Cheese Royale. Oh, yeah? He has hooked us up. Good, good stuff. Wonderful stuff. Pimento cheese. Like the best pimento cheese you can buy on the planet. Better than palmetto cheese? Yeah, I think so. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And there's like some, yeah, it's really good. Go try that stuff. Queen Charlotte's Pimento Cheese Royale. All right. We received uh, Christmas cards from the Cavanaugh's, the Lees, the Loses, and you know... Hillary and Mike, who we're oh, talking yeah. to. They hook us up with the cheese. Too. Yeah, with the Flathead uh, Lake. Flathead Lake or just Flathead Cheese? I think it's Flathead Lake. I think it is, too. God. It's delicious. Yeah. Hillary, you're the best. Yeah, thank you. And the Nelsons. So thank you for those Christmas cards. Um, Mike, over at Shaker and Spoon, and the rest of the gang, I thank them before for sending the box. Um Go check out Shaker and Spoon. It's awesome. Great gift for yourself, for somebody else, yeah. where uh, they send you all the ingredients you need to make cocktails, including oh, recipes. Right. Yeah. You just add booze and wow your friends. And what better time to go off a page and thank Crown Royal when we offhandedly mentioned that the Crown Royal's uh, rye whiskey won the whiskey of yeah, the year. Right. And I was like, man, I'd love to try that. They sent us some. Someone yes. heard it. Yeah. And they sent us six bottles of booze. That's right. Nice guys. Holy cow. Did you try so, it? Not yet. Well, I guess you just found it today in, yeah. the, in the office. So, so they're, uh, if you tried it, that'd be 1955. We should uh, we should mention Crown Royal basically every time. Yeah. Every episode. So Crown Royal. Uh, Ashley Miller, <laughs> thank you for the wonderful Lego candy that you gave us in San Francisco. Yes. Thank you for that. Um and I think in Los Angeles, too, remember? She just follows us around with Lego candy. Well, at least in California, yeah. yeah. Um, Lucy Brooks sent us a nice letter. Good luck with the rest of the granny list, Lucy. Thank you. Uh, congratulations and best of luck to Allison and Chuck for their wedding in Cleveland. Yes. Um, Connor and Beatriz uh, Marinin sent us our beautiful wine cork wreath, Chuck. Thanks, oh, guys. is that who sent that? Yes. Jerry wow. loves that, too. She won't set it down. Good she luck with your alcoholism. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, thanks to Eric Young from uh, Squamish, B.C. for the typewritten letter. Uh, Eric has a site called uh, pigeonsandinc.com where he offers the service of writing typewritten letters on others' behalf. Yeah, and he uses a Squarespace site. Pretty awesome How about stuff. that? Yep. Uh, Kelly from the Elephant's Trunk sent us some awesome toys. Thank you very much for those, Kelly. Uh, thank you to M from Melbourne, Australia via Knoxville, Tennessee. With a homemade sourdough hot cross bun. Yes, that was good. Um, and then Elizabeth Henry sent us a signed copy of Who Killed Mr. Moonlight by the one and only David J. of Bauhaus. Oh, wow. I made a joke about Bauhaus. And um, Elizabeth Henry said, oh, David J. is my boyfriend's dad. I'll get him to sign a copy of his autobiography and mail it to the guy. Who was he in Bauhaus? He played bass. Wow. Yeah. He uh, also had a good solo career, too. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Sean Erskine, thank you for the Stuff You Should Know bottle cap logo art. That was great. Yes. Um, Jeremy and Irene uh, Kamiya, K-A-M-I-Y-A, sent us Glass Antique, which is amazing, Chuck. Let me just describe this. They basically take an awesome piece of teak driftwood sure, and then blow a glass bowl so that it molds on the bottom to that specific piece of teak. Yeah. And then, buddy, you've got yourself a beautiful place to house a goldfish. Put use for a hurricane lamp for a candle. Uh-huh. Uh, keep your uh, keys in there. Maybe hold those uh, jelly bean counting contests with. Who knows? Sky's the limit. But it's awesome and attractive, and it looks really, really cool and mid-century modern. So go check out k a m i y a c o dot com. Uh, Dorian Wilson, owner of Revival Ltd. They make cool shirts, and the proceeds of those shirts go to uh, people in Brazil displaced by the World Cup. Is that right? 
Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, and you can find that information at revivalglobal.com. Yes. Um, Johnny Wood, who works for Yakima, the um, outfitter, the biking outfitter. Sure. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Yakima. Yeah. They make like bike racks. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, he sent us some swag. Yeah, I and, got a toque that I wear. Yeah, and he, he travels around selling Yakima stuff, which probably sells itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, he listens to us on the road. So thanks a lot, Johnny. Uh, this is one of my favorites of recent memory. Uh, Ravi uh, Zupta, he made the the bullet pens. Man, and he sent those so long ago. And it's so, it's we, we've just been lax. So it, thank you for those. It's really neat. He has a series called the, he's an artist called the Mightier Than series. Mm-hmm. As in, pen is mightier than the sword. And he takes like bullet casings and makes these fountain pens from bullet casings. Yes. It's really neat. It makes yeah. a statement, and it's cool looking. Yeah. Um, we got a nice letter from Jenny Cochran. Matt, is that? Uh, we want to thank Matt for the handmade hinge game. H-E-N-G-E is in Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Lori Gesh for the copy of her kid's book, Copperlight, colon, A Really Crappy Story. Very nice. And she sent us some real copper lights, which is fossilized poop. Oh, that's right. I remember seeing that. I have a piece tucked in my cheek right now. <laughs> uh, thanks to our buddy Gary for the homemade cookies. Uh, and then Beth Vumanic Lopez sent us a copy of Unbound, colon, How Eight Technologies Made Us Human, Transformed Society, and Brought the World to the Brink by Richard L. Courier. Thank you very much for that. Hard copy, no less. In uh, my final one, I had a bunch of people send very lovely gifts for uh, Ruby. Oh, yeah. Uh, my baby when we got her. Yeah. And um, I'm not going to read off all of their names, but you know who you are. And it was very, very nice. <laughs> you know who you are. They do. Uh, I've got a last one. All right. Uh, which seems chumpy following that heartfelt thing. But thanks a lot to Brett Goodson for sending us Port Cloud stuff. Port Cloud pork grind chips, mm-hmm. soap, and pork dust. If you're like, I'm not too big on breadcrumbs. I'd rather them be porky. Port Cloud has you covered. I think that was decidedly non-chumpy. Thank you. It was a, a nice thank you. Brett Goodson, thanks you too. All right, well, we're going to finish up. We have uh, quite a few more, and we're going to finish up in the next episode, I think. Yes. And uh, as always, thank you to those who send in good thoughts and letters and handmade fun gifts. It's yeah, we, very nice. We really appreciate it. It's the best. Yep. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 